Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 26 in the book of John, entitled, Lord, Who Has Believed Our Report? Where we discuss John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses today? Well, these are going to be some of the deepest, um, most challenging theological verses that we're going to study in John's Gospel. We've seen throughout John's Gospel that there's always a divided response. When the evidence for Jesus' deity is presented, the crowd is divided. Uh, half of them believe and half don't. And today we're going to get a, a very deep, powerful theological explanation for why the Jews who didn't believe, why they didn't believe. And we're going to see uh, the judgment that ultimately comes uh, for, on people who refuse to believe. And so it's a very uh, sober, weighty thing. But it also should cause us as Christians to give glory to God for our own salvation because we realize it's something that God's worked by His sovereign grace. Mm. Well, so that our listeners can have an idea of the passage that we're talking about, I'm going to go ahead and read John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Andy, as we begin this passage, who is John talking about in verse 37, and what does John say about them? Uh, He's really talking about the unbelievers uh, who have seen him. He frequently calls them the Jews, but he's referring to uh, the the people who are rejecting Christ. They're looking at this evidence. I mean, Lazarus' resurrection from the dead. They look at him and they want to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. And so here we are rolling up our sleeves, John is, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and going right into the dark cave of unbelief and Mm. explaining it. And it's very, very difficult. Uh, Again, you could look at it and say, you know, how could people read these prophecies, Isaiah 53, for example, we'll get to that in a minute, look at these incredible miracles, listen to the only perfect man that's ever lived, look at him and hate him and reject him. And it's something we have to deal with because actually the overwhelming majority of people in the world who have heard of Christ, who know the gospel, who are aware of the facts of the gospel, reject it. Mm. And so we have to deal with that theologically. And it seems like the miracles that Jesus has 
performed to this point should have been enough mm -hmm. to convince these Jews that Jesus was God's son. It seems like that, that would have convinced them, like you just mentioned, the, mm -hmm. the raising of Lazarus. How does their unbelief fulfill Isaiah 53.1? And according to Isaiah, how does the revealing of the arm of the Lord relate to believing the message? Well, this is incredible. Um, I had the privilege of spending five years writing a commentary on mm -hmm. Isaiah. And um, Isaiah 53 really begins in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, 13 is the beginning of that chapter. Um, but Isaiah 53, 1 says, Lord, who has believed our message? Um, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So in the process of writing that commentary on Isaiah, I used Isaiah 53 as a litmus test for commentaries. Because mm. there are liberal commentaries out there, commentaries that do not take the word of God seriously. I would just open up to Isaiah 53 and see what the author said about Isaiah 53. Because here's, here's the point. Isaiah 53 is a staggeringly, overwhelmingly clear prediction of substitutionary atonement. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as it said in the verse before that, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Four straight statements on substitutionary atonement. Um, and so you're like, well, how can, I mean, this was written six centuries before, six and a half centuries before Jesus was born. How can you read that and not believe in Jesus? And yet the chapter begins, Lord, who has believed our message? Mm. So Isaiah seemed to know they're not going to believe this. And then the second part, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, that's the key. We are spiritually blind, and we're going to get to spiritual blindness in a minute, but we are spiritually blind until God takes the blindness away, until God heals us of the blindness, as we saw in John 9. And so really this is a key section here in the Gospel of John to explain how you can look at these prophecies, Isaiah 53, how you can look at the miracles and still not believe in Jesus. So what does it mean then that they could not believe? Mm -hmm. That's a very strong statement. Mm. Uh, verse thir uh, 39, for this reason they could not believe. So before we get to what John thinks the reason is that they could not believe, and I'll tell you right now, it's because God has blinded their eyes mm. and hardened their hearts. That's why they couldn't believe. So we get to that and that's it's deep theology. That's the doctrine of reprobation, the hardening of the heart of a human being. Um, but he does say, clearly here, for this reason they could not believe. It was not, it was, it, they were not capable of faith. They were not capable of believing. It's wow. just not possible. So here's how I understand it. No one can believe in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit reveals him to their heart. Mm -hmm. Unless the Holy Spirit gives the gift of faith, you cannot it, it, you're incapable of believing. Just like the man born blind, until Jesus miraculously healed him, he could not see light. His eyes were open and they were blind. And so it is with, un, uh, with, with belief. We cannot believe if God doesn't give us the gift. All right, so that, that really kills the doctrine of autonomous free will that any individual can at any time just up and believe in Jesus. No, you can't. Uh, if you know, Again, Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him. So it's impossible for them to believe. So uh, just zeroing in on that, for this reason they could not believe, but the statement doesn't end. There. Right. Because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts hmm. so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. 
So the question is here in verse 40, who has blinded their eyes? Sure. This is a very deep subject because the blinding of the eye spiritually is ascribed to Satan in other places. Satan has blinded their eyes, etc. But that's not, Isaiah 6 is not, is not talking about Satan. Um, it, is, it is talking about God. There's no doubt about it that, that God has blinded their eyes. Now, I think he does it through Satan. I think he allows the world and people's desires to put an effective blindness, a veil over their hearts so that they can't see the truth. Hmm. But ultimately, it's God that's doing it. Yeah, I think about Ephesians 2 where it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins and following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, these things that harden and deaden our hearts and our eyes, but they are, it seems, based on this passage, means by which God does do that in the lives of unbelievers, but graciously then in the life of a believer draws them out of that and yeah. gives them life. That's so true. And I did say Isaiah 6, and I didn't make a mistake. Isaiah 53, verse 1 is, Lord, who's believed our message? But then this statement about the blinding of the eyes and the hardening of the heart is actually stated multiple times. Mm. Jesus states it as well. Mm. Um, and so it's really quite remarkable because it's in one of the great chapters in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah's commissioning. And we need to set that up because he's about to mention it, yeah. um, you know, in verse 41. But in the commissioning of Isaiah in chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him there were seraphs, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then Isaiah said, Woe is me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then, as it turns out, one of the seraphs flew to him with a uh, tong, which he put, touched on, on the, the man's lips, and uh, seared his lips. And he said, See, the Lord has taken away your sin. And he said, And he heard this voice saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. And then God sent him. <laughs> with this message. What, what shall I say to them? Well, say this. Mm. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make this people's heart calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. It's like, that's my message? That's what I go tell them? You'll never understand, you'll never hear, and you'll never understand, ever. Mm. So that's Isaiah's message, yes. And then he says, well, for how long, Lord? How long do I do that? Until all the cities are destroyed until everything's ruined and ravaged, but the Lord will bring a remnant out of the destruction. It's really an amazing, amazing chapter. But this is one of the most quoted texts of the Old Testament, uh, and it explains the Jewish unbelief, because God has hardened their, their hearts, He's blinded their eyes. And in the same way we've seen the contrast in the responses of the crowds throughout the book of John up to this point, it seems like, again, here there's this contrast between this blindness and hardening, mm. or seeing, particularly seeing glory yeah. and responding. Speak a little bit to kind of the, the blinding and hardening aspect, right. but then also the significance of John's statement, he, Isaiah, saw his glory and spoke of him. What does it mean to, to see glory? Okay, that's <laughs> two overwhelmingly <laughs> deep theological subjects. So let's talk about the blindness mm. and the hardening. 
Here, here's the thing. Romans 9 makes it very plain that God knows exactly what he's doing with every human being in history, on the face of the earth, mm -hmm. every single one, all of them. And he's either doing one, or, one, or, one of two things. He's either showing mercy to them or he's hardening them. Those are the two things he does with human beings. He shows them mercy or he hardens them. To the elect, he shows mercy. And to the reprobate, he hardens them. And everything, in some degree, tends toward one end or the other. God knows exactly what he's doing. But how he shows mercy and how he hardens are very unpredictable. Sometimes he shows mercy by bringing somebody through terrible circumstances, through mm -hmm. natural disasters or through you know, being condemned in a court of law and being sent to prison or, or losing both your parents at an early age. I mean, it's mercy, mercy, mercy to the elect. Conversely, to the, to the reprobate, it, it you know, could be um, born into wealth and privilege. It could be born into poverty. It could be born in a Muslim home, it, who knows? Um, but he is hardening that person's heart. And everyone has to do, no matter what your theology, whether you're Calvinistic or Arminian, whether you believe in, in the sovereignty of God or you tend to espouse human free will, you have to deal with the fact that Romans 9 says that God hardens hearts. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Generally what Arminians say is that they harden their own heart first and then God hardens them. But even then, that somebody is walking on planet Earth still alive and God's hardening their hearts runs contrary to the way most Arminians see salvation. Mm -hmm. It's like God always wants to save people. He's always trying to save them. It's like apparently not because he hardened Pharaoh's heart while he still lived. And so the idea is you have to deal with the hardening at some point. And what is going on? It's, it's fundamentally, um, a, I think it's a choice on God's part to not heal the perception, the spiritual perception, the spiritual eyes. Mm -hmm. Blind people, physically blind people can believe in Jesus, like Fanny Crosby and all that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you just have to hear and believe. Faith comes by hearing. And so there's an internal eyes of the heart and that God therapeutically heals that person and saves them. When he chooses not to, then everything that happens hardens. Really, Satan is hardening, but God effectively, by not healing, is hardening. Mm. And so there's a judicial hardening that comes on them, and they are unable to see, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. They don't see it. So that's the first part of your two-part, two very dense, deep question. <laughs> the second is, verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw his glory mm. and spoke about him. <laughs> now, the NIV 84 um, puts Jesus's in there. So but they're just doing what they do sometimes, which is interpreting it for all of us. There's one of two options. Mm -hmm. Since the word glory here is we're either, either talking about the first or the second person of the Trinity. All right. Um, but in the context, it has to be Jesus. We're talking about the, gl the glory of Jesus. We're talking about why is it? Mm. Uh, look back at 30, 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Mm. So they're not seeing Jesus' glory. As it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen what? His glory. So we're just definitely talking about Jesus. So therefore, if that's true, then... Isaiah 6 is Jesus. Wow. The pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ seated on a throne. And Isaiah saw him. And, and it makes sense because Isaiah saw Jesus hmm. more clearly than any of the Old Testament prophets. He saw Jesus. Yeah. And so he saw his glory and he wrote about him, spoke about him. And what did he see? He saw brilliant, burning, holy, 
seraphim. Seraph is uh, the Hebrew word for to burn, seraph. So these are burning ones covering their faces before Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Mm. Any chance we're all underestimating him? Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I think, I, even in my Old Testament reading, I've even, even earlier in the Old Testament, looking at the law and all of the sacrifices that were required for sin and thinking about the holiness of yeah. God and of Christ and thinking, I underestimate yeah. just how costly uh, my sin is, how seriously yeah. a holy God takes that. Absolutely. And then, as I'm going to preach, God willing, on Easter Sunday, in a couple of days, I know that you, you all will hear this podcast long after Easter, but mm. Easter's coming up in a couple of days, and um, I'm preaching on John 20. And the pinnacle, the pinnacle of John's gospel is Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God. And um, that's Jesus' glory, to see it and write about it. And um, it's, pretty, it's pretty powerful. But um, we're really talking about why the Jews would not see the glory of God. And it's because they, he, God, Almighty God, has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. Hmm. Well, verse 42 has this word, at least in the ESV, nevertheless, at the beginning. So it seems to kind of turn a corner and, and shift our focus a little bit, but not much. It's, it's yeah. still in the realm of what we're talking about here. What had the Pharisees done that caused these believers not to confess their faith, or those in this verse to not confess their faith? Well, I think we've got to have um, Nicodemus in mind here, maybe. Um, um, Nicodemus would be a paradigm example of somebody mm -hmm. who I think has come to a genuine saving faith, but he's having a hard time kissing his old career in the Sanhedrin goodbye. Because yeah. you're saying goodbye to a lot. And what had they done? Well, we learned in John 9 that they decided that if anyone believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Mm. And that's not like you're losing your membership in the Civitan Club. Um, that's you're kicked out of Jewish society. So you can't make a living anymore, you're out. You're, you're an outcast. Mm. And where are you gonna go? I mean, I suppose you could move, et cetera, but I think this is for this very reason, the Apostle Paul collected money among the believers in the Gentiles for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem because they had been desynagogued and they couldn't sell their pottery if they're potters or their furniture if they're carpenters or, or any of their trades. Um, they're out. And if you're Nicodemus, I mean, you're a ruler and a teacher and all that. No, no one's going to listen to you, etc. So he loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. By the way, this is um, a very important statement of verse mm -hmm. 43 mm -hmm. of how, um, um, you know, what you know, the significance of praise from God. I, were you going to ask a question about that? I wondered. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it reminds me when we think about the beginning of Romans, even the, this kind of exchange, like taking... Uh, one thing instead of another. It yeah. says they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Romans 1 talks about exchanging uh, the created thing for the creator, worshiping one that they shouldn't instead of the one that they ought. Yeah. And so it seems here that uh, this is an important insight into what's going on in the hearts of, yeah. uh, of these, these individuals. For sure. Um, it's interesting. The NIV 84 has praise, and mm. I understand why, because sometimes the word can mean to glory in something, can mean to praise it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm okay either way with it, but I think praise makes a lot of sense to me. They love the praise that comes from men mm -hmm. and all of the honors and accolades of sure. the glory more than the praise and the glory that comes from God, which would be salvation, but also commendation. Because mm -hmm. Jesus said, if you stand up and testify to me, and you are desynagogued, and you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And rewards are, I can prove it easily, praise from God. 
honor that comes from God. At any rate, these people love their earthly situations too much. And this does explain, again, at a different level, why people don't confess Christ. They're afraid of losing their earthly position. Or in the parable of the seed and the soils, the thorns choke it out, making it unfruitful. And the thorns are worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the, the love for other things. So that's worldly concerns, including the things that come from human beings. Mm. And that word confess, I think a lot of times we use that when we're talking about confessing sin or, or confessing something that we've done wrong. <clears throat> what would that mean here? And, and for us today, what does it mean really to confess our faith? Why does that matter for, for us? Well, I think, um, let's take Nicodemus. It would be to stand up in the Sanhedrin when they're plotting and scheming against Jesus and saying, I think what you're doing is wrong. I think Jesus actually is the Messiah, the son of David. We should worship him and follow him and obey him. Hmm. And then let the chips fall where they may. You're like, wow, that's asking a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, to be willing to die for Jesus. And I don't know that they would have killed Nicodemus, but that's what it means. I think it means to speak your convictions about Jesus, no matter what the consequences, to mm. be able to, to testify um, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and so Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So it's similar to witnessing. We are going to confess or speak the truth about Jesus to unbelievers. Yeah, and that bold testimony, even having the right words to say in those moments, both actively declaring who Jesus is, but then also not passively just sitting by and letting Jesus' name be dragged through the mud, but uh, proclaiming him as who he truly is. Absolutely. So the end of John 12 here marks the close of Jesus' public ministry in John's mm -hmm. gospel. Yeah. What appeal and warning does Jesus give in these last verses in 44 through 50? Well, fundamentally, he's saying effectively to reject me is to reject God. Hmm. If you believe in me, you're believing in the one who sent me, ultimately. All right, so when, when any individual believes in me, he does not believe in me, but in the one who sent me. So he does believe in me, but he's saying it, it really ultimately is belief in God. Uh, so you can't just, just set me aside. Um, he, he comes into the world to take people out of darkness. So that goes back to the darkness blindness theme. Mm -hmm. The reason that he came is to give sight to the blind spiritually. And so he speaks of his witness and his testimony as giving sight to the blind. And uh, concerning those who hear the gospel and don't believe it, mm -hmm. he's saying, I'm not going to judge him. My word will judge him. It's an interesting statement because Jesus actually is the judge. But what he's saying is you're judged already. You're yeah. already condemned because the word I have spoken to you will condemn you. Now, here's the thing. We need to understand that there's a variable level of, of judgment on Judgment Day. Um, there are different levels of, of punishment. Hmm. And uh, Jesus said it will be more bearable on the Day of Judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And so that tells you the principle. It's in proportion to knowledge. The more you know and reject, the greater is your condemnation. That's how Jesus' word stands over you and will condemn you. You've mm. heard it, you've got all this evidence, you've got all the miracles, you've got the gospel, and yet you don't believe. Yeah. Verses 49 and 50 again speak of this connection between how Jesus speaks, where his authority comes from. I wonder if you can speak to that just for a moment and yeah. thinking about the, the authority that Jesus had when he spoke, that the reason these words are so important is linked to yeah. their origin. He really is the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of the office of the prophet. 
the office of the prophet in Jewish history, as you remember on Mount Sinai, that God himself Hmm. spoke to the Jews, the Ten Commandments. They were so terrified that they never wanted to hear that voice again. They were so afraid. So they said to Moses, would you go up on the mountain, go up into the cloud and get God's words and bring them back to us? And God was delighted in this. He Hmm. said, I wish that they would always fear me like they're fearing me right now. The office of the prophet then is to stand in the presence of God and get words from him and bring them down to the people. Jesus perfectly fulfilled that. He stood in the presence of the Father and he heard from the Father the words he was to say. Hmm. And everything he said is what the Father wanted him to say. Better than any prophet that ever lived, better than Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. He perfectly stood in the presence of God and brought those words back to the people. As was said of Samuel, he let none of God's words fall to the ground. But that's even more true of Jesus. He perfectly delivered the Word of God. Therefore, John rightly calls him the Word. He is the Word. Or as the author of Hebrews says, um, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so fundamentally, Jesus stood in the presence of God and brought God's words to the people. So to reject Jesus is to reject God directly. Mm. Andy, there's so much in this passage. I feel like we've covered some theological mountains, even just in these final verses of chapter 12. But what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage as we wrap up? It's a warning. Mm. Don't hear the words of the Gospel of John and reject Jesus. Mm -hmm. Hear the words of the Gospel of John and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Um, this should make you be filled with fear. And if it is, then, then let the fear drive you to Christ, to flee from the wrath to come, to find salvation in Christ. And if you are a believer, understand that God, by His grace, taught you to do that, taught you to fear judgment and to flee to Christ and give Him all the credit and all the glory. Hmm. Well, this has been episode 26 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 27 entitled Jesus Washes Feet, where we'll discuss John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.